Well, I am delighted to say that joining us on the Godcast today, uh, well, to be honest, he doesn't really need any introduction. It's the one and only George Galloway. How are you, George? Uh, it's a pleasure, uh, Father, to be on something called the Godcast. How could I possibly turn that down? Thank you. Where, whereabouts in the world are you today? Where do we catch you from? I, I am right now in London, uh, but my home is in South Scotland. Okay, Where, whereabouts in Scotland? I'm quite fond of Scotland. In the in the borders. Okay, yeah, we uh, we have a, a family member who, who's kind of around um, Dumfries area. It's absolutely beautiful around there on the coastline. It's very beautiful, yeah. yeah. And of course, it's my ancestral land. Uh, my name's not Galloway for nothing. No, absolutely. So, um, George, if, um, hopefully this will be a little bit different to the regular interviews. I'm not uh, planning to drag you over the coals or anything like that. I'd just like to perhaps start by just finding out a little bit about yourself, George. So, um, where was home as a boy for George Galloway? I was born in uh, what was once a village, uh, but by then had become basically an adjunct uh, of the city of Dundee, the area that I was born in was called Lochie, L-O-C-H-E-E, and was known as Tipperary, uh, was almost, almost entirely uh, composed of Irish immigrants, uh, some old immigrants from the early part of the 20th century, and many uh, from later, from the 1920s and 30s, um, the uh, overwhelming majority of the people amongst whom I grew up had uh, Irish accents or, or Irish uh, cultural values, at least. Okay. And was it, was it a happy childhood? Was it, was it something you reflect on fondly? Very, very, very happy. Uh, I was uh, born into just about as poor uh, circumstances as were around in 1954. I came home from the maternity hospital to live for four, nearly five years uh, in a one-room attic, a sloping roof, making even a cot impossible. And so I literally slept as a baby in a drawer. Uh, uh, it was uh, very poor. Uh, outside toilet, of course. I thought that's all there was. Uh, we shared the outside toilet with five other families, so the seat was always warm. Uh, we uh, had uh, no, no, no bath, went to the public baths in St. Mary's Lochie uh, once a week, I'm sorry to say, as was the habit of working class people at that time. Yeah. I washed my hair once a week uh, with a sachet of, of shampoo, uh, how things have changed. <laughs> uh, but when I was five, uh, we moved into uh, a brand new spanking new council house. You could still smell the, the cement. You could, uh, the other parts of the street were still being built and everywhere around were building sites of new council houses uh, going up. So that would have been in 1959 okay. uh, when, uh, when council houses were being built in the hundreds of thousands every year, unlike uh, today, of course. And uh, that marked a tremendous step up in the world from a one-room attic. Uh, we had uh, an inside toilet, bath, garden front and back, uh, and uh, a brand new school at the, uh, the foot of the path 
uh, and a brand new set of um, uh, industrial units uh, built uh, in the post-war period and business redirected uh, for my father to work in. And he worked for more than 20 years at the top of that road in the National Cash Register Company. Uh, so, yeah, tremendously happy. Uh, one mum, one dad, loving parents. And although we didn't have much in the way of material things, we had much more important things than that. Yeah. And was there any aspect of, uh, it is the God cast, George, was there any aspect of faith in the family as a boy? Very much. Uh, my, my mother's side of the family were uh, devout uh, Roman Catholics. My father not so, uh, but uh, with absolutely no animus towards religion. Uh, completing, as he did, uh, the Karl Marx quote, which is often only half used. Uh, Marx said, uh, religion is the opium of the people. Uh, but he went on in the same sentence to say, the last sigh of the oppressed, the heart of the heartless world. And that's how I've always looked on religion. Yeah. Georgia, I've, um, we've had the BBC at our church this week, and there was a, a quite a well-respected journalist with us. And I, and I just asked, you asked if, if he knew if you were a man of faith. Are, are you a man of faith or not? Very much so. I am a strong believer in God and have always publicly proclaimed so, uh, which doesn't uh, uh, gain me much uh, credit in liberal and so-called progressive circles. They regard that as a mark of cultural conservatism, and they say that as if it's a bad thing. Uh, but uh, but uh, I'm very strongly a man of faith, yes. Well, um, I'm just interested to get, uh, get you this. Uh, uh, this is part of the political week on the Godcast, and... Um, I was talking to Isabel O'Shot about these things. Tim Farron gave up his leadership of uh, the Liberal Party predominantly, I think, because of his faith. What was your what was your take on that when that happened, George? Uh, it's a sign of the times. Uh, he'd chosen the wrong party if he wanted to be uh, uh, um, mindful of God. Uh, he he chose the wrong party because. Liberals and so-called progressives in general uh, have no time for faith and have no time for the idea of God. Uh, they think that we are uh, somehow infantilized uh, by such belief. Uh, although, as I always point out, believing that all of this came from nothing is a far more far-fetched idea than believing that a creator uh, made it and set it in motion. Yeah. And um, has, your, has your faith changed over the years through circumstances and things you've observed and seen, or has, has it been a bit of a steady ship on this one? Steady, uh, but if anything, stronger. Uh, the more I know, uh, the more I look around the earth and the heavens, uh, the more convinced I am. Uh, that uh, this is all God's creation, uh, and that whatever happens has uh, at least been set in motion uh, by God. For example, there are some people uh, who don't believe in the theory of evolution. Uh, I'm not one of those. All I say is, if there has been evolution, then God must have intended it that way. 
that seems to me a much more rational uh, explanation of things uh, than that, that one moment there was nothing, literally nothing, and that out of that nothing came something, and not just something, uh, but that uh, life on earth uh, may well have begun as uh, amoeba in the swamp, uh, but it ended in, in Pavarotti and Michelangelo, and that cannot be an accident. Okay, I like that. I like that. I might use that. Um, George, um, you've said you believed in, in God. Um, so the next question is, are you a Christian or you have leanings to other faith groups? Well, I, I'm absolutely open to all faiths. Uh, you know the old saying, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. Uh, so that would, be my, uh, that would be my stock answer. Uh, but uh, I, I'm a believer in all the monotheistic faiths and treat each and every one of them with equal respect. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. George, you are, you know, there's, there's little doubt you are quite a controversial figure. And when I um, advertised on, on the Godcast that you'd be coming on, um, I'm, I, the reaction was quite uh, unusual. Some people were delighted and can't wait to see this interview when it goes out. And some people have contacted me and saying, well, um, that's all very well, but I won't be entertaining George Galloway with my presence. Why do you, what, why do you think that is? You're a bit of a moral well, politician, aren't you? Well, any politician worthy of the name uh, takes a stand on things, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is a signpost and not a, a weather vane as Mr. Ben once put it. Uh, any politician worthy of the name and uh, anyone who was doing the, the name justice uh, would take firm stands on things, point people in a direction that they may very well at first not want to go. Uh, but uh, it's uh, vital uh, that we have uh, such leadership and it's the lack of it that's left us in the mess that we are in. If I take one uh, example, I take it because uh, it's been the quickest and most comprehensive transformation uh, in uh, public opinion about me in my lifetime, though there have been others. Uh, when I stood against the invasion and occupation of Iraq, I was excoriated as as mad or bad or both. Uh, but now you can't find anyone anywhere uh, who will any longer uh, say that the invasion and occupation of Iraq has been a good thing. You, I, I would literally, if I, if I did an Oxford Union debate on it, I'd probably have to argue both sides myself because no one will show up in polite company and uh, argue that uh, what I was saying back in 2002-2003 was wrong. Uh, so as vindications go, uh, that, that one is just about as complete and as rapid as we're likely to get. Okay. George, where, where did this, um, you've obviously got a deep passion for politics, where, where did that begin for you? Was it, were you a teenager? Was it even before that or was it a little bit later in life? No, it was uh, before that. Uh, I was. I grew up in a in a uh, a political household. Uh, we we discussed. We didn't have a breakfast table, so the cliche doesn't work. But uh, uh, 
sitting around the fire, uh, we, we discussed political events. My parents were both uh, very strong labor activists. Uh, I remember in 1964, for several weeks, there was no daylight in our house because all of our windows were given over uh, to full-size posters for Mr. Wilson and his slogan, Let's Go With Labor, uh, which was the winning slogan in 1964. Uh, my father was an engineering worker and a stalwart of the engineering union, uh, the AEU as it then was. Uh, my mother, uh, with her Irish background, had a very strong anti-imperialist uh, set of uh, beliefs. Um, and that's the uh, atmosphere in which I grew up. I was giving out leaflets uh, in elections in short trousers uh, long before I was 10. Uh, I joined the Labour Party at the age of 13. Uh, I, you're supposed to be 15. Uh, but I, I then had the benefit of looking older than I was, a process which I'm glad to say has gone into reverse. Uh, and I, uh, I, I've spent all of my life, therefore, uh, in politics, one way or another. Yeah. George, can, um, can I ask you, um, I interviewed Giles Fraser, who I'm sure you've heard of and know, um, yeah. recently, talking about um, um, the Middle East and some of the issues there. And I asked him the question, do you think that the West cares enough? And he suggested that people, are, they didn't. And it was perhaps because they're too entwined in their own battles in the UK. Let me, can I ask you the same question? Do you think the West cares enough about these places? Well, there are always people uh, in any society who think outside the box, who think outside the prevailing orthodoxy. And there's nothing wrong with, uh, with believing that a charity begins at home as long as it doesn't end at home. Uh, there's nothing wrong with pride and patriotism in one's country and its, uh, its people and their achievements. Uh, I, I myself would put myself in that bracket. Uh, but to believe that that, that any man is an island entire unto himself uh, would be wrong, even if you do live geographically in an island. Uh, that it's just as wrong and just as foolish as believing that because you're very wealthy and comfortable inside your own gated community, uh, that it doesn't matter what life is like over the barbed wire, even in your own country. Uh, it's uh, not just not moral, uh, and it is not moral, uh, but it is uh, 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 damagingly uh, uh, self-harming mm -hmm. as, a, as a nostrum. Uh, because, of course, if you are surrounded by a sea of misery, uh, that sea will come through your barbed wire fence one day. Mm -hmm. And ditto on the international level. Uh, a good example of it is in the current refugee crisis in Europe. Uh, the current refugee crisis is a direct result of war, famine, pestilence, and disease in poor countries, about which uh, the rich countries did too little, and too often the rich countries were directly complicit. Uh, a good example being the wars of the last 
20 years. Uh, you destroy country after country after country and then act all surprised when they wash up, literally wash up on your beach. Yeah, thank you, George. I, I want to just move on a little bit from that. Uh, in Jan January of this year, just before lockdown, I was, I was fortunate enough to go to the Holy Land, George, and um, it was an amazing trip for me. It kind of highlighted some of my own naivety about the issues there. And um, it, it just seems that there seems to be a real, um, a real struggle out there. Um, and I want to ask you, George, is there any room for empathy in the Holy Land crisis? Is Northern uh, Ireland, well, is Northern Ireland an example of what can happen? Uh, yes, potentially, as is uh, South Africa. Uh, the, the stronger uh, community, the one which has lauded it uh, for a very long time, uh, has to recognize the humanity uh, of the oppressed and has to share power uh, with the oppressed. Uh, that happened after a very long struggle in South Africa in which I was very proud to have played a part, more of a part than most, having been one of the only people on the left in Britain uh, to travel the length and breadth of apartheid South Africa uh, undercover for the African National Congress, then led by Nelson Mandela from prison. Uh, it uh, is happening in the north of Ireland, but it is definitely not yet happening uh, in the Terra Santa, in the Holy Land. Uh, but the time may come. It's not guaranteed. Nothing is guaranteed in life. Uh, but the time may come uh, when that uh, begins to happen. But there's no, no sight of it on the horizon, I'm afraid. George, I, I also interviewed uh, uh, Reverend Richard Shule, who's the Dean of the St. George's College in Jerusalem, and uh, he explained beautifully some of the fragility that's in the place. But Maybe I'm naive, but when I was in the old city of Jerusalem, what, what struck me was um, Christians, Jews and Muslims um, were, I don't know if flourishing is the right word, but they were living alongside each other. And I find it a really beautiful and incredibly spiritual experience, but obviously breaking out from that and, and meeting some of the Palestinians and their circumstances and the oppression that they're under, it was absolutely heartbreaking. But if you could, if you could wave a magic wand, George, and, and bring a solution to the Holy Land, what needs to happen? Well, the only uh, real solution is a binational state of Israel hyphen Palestine, in which everyone, uh, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, uh, live as equal citizens under the law. Uh, and the uh, prospects of that are exceedingly small at this uh, point in time. Uh, when Mandela was asked by the, the white nationalists of the Orange Free State uh, if they could uh, have the Orange Free State as a, as a white state inside South Africa, he answered, we don't believe in white states or black states. We only believe in democratic states. And that is the only answer in the Holy Land for 
uh, one man, one woman, one vote under a constitution, preserving the religious and national rights of all communities living between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. Uh, this talk, endless talk and no action uh, about a two-state solution is, is absolutely dead in the water. Just this very day, uh, another 1,500 settlement units uh, were announced uh, to be built uh, on the rapidly vanishing uh, Palestinian land that was supposedly to be uh, the Palestinian state in the Oslo Agreement, which I supported at the time, uh, but which I say are uh, completely extinct now. Uh, th there's no uh, part of the so-called Palestinian state uh, which is not already settled with gigantic, and by settlements, people need to know, as you will have seen yourself. We're not talking about rolled wagons and tents here. We're talking about cities with, uh, with fountains and swimming pools and uh, huge housing developments. Uh, the land has been paved and built and taken. Uh, and so no separation of uh, this territory is any longer possible. And therefore, equal rights uh, for all the people living there is the only remaining solution. What's your, what's your feeling to, a, to the general Israeli Joe Bloggs on the street. Well, I have lived in Israel many times and for long months. I have many Israeli friends and some of the people I respect the most in the world are citizens of Israel and living there. Uh, Gideon Levy, for example, the great uh, Haaretz uh, writer, the most courageous writer uh, operating on the earth today, is, of course, an Israeli Jew. Uh, and I lived in Shankin Street in Tel Aviv, not far from Dizengoff Square, uh, for a very long uh, periods of time. It matters nothing to me what nationality someone is, still less what their religion is. What matters to me is what they believe in and, and what they do. Uh, it's nothing to do with the labels uh, into which people were born, where we're all born. Is, uh, is, of course, entirely accidental. George, if I can just expand that out a little bit, because I'm mindful of time, but I'm, I'm really keen to get your views on uh, numerous things. So um, I, I interviewed a gentleman called Father Nadim Nassar. He's the on only Anglican priest in the UK. He's actually from Syria, and he spoke so beautifully about Syria um, and described it as um, another people's war that's going on there. And the, the victim of that is, is the bleeding of the beautiful people from Syria, the talent, the brains, the creativity, the artists. Um, if I can put these in two, you know, um, how do you see the Syrian conflict at the moment? Um, and if you can go into another thing is, just want to ask about Iraq. How do you see Iraq as a nation now? Uh, well, as this is the Godcast, uh, let me uh, begin by saying that the holiest place uh, I have ever been uh, was not the Vatican, uh, but a town called Malula, uh, which is the Christian heart of Syria, the beating heart of uh, Christian Arab civilization. Uh, they speak Aramaic, the language of Jesus himself. Uh, they, they have 
literally carved into the mountains and caves, uh, the most exquisite uh, churches, chapels, monasteries, nunneries, uh, and I grew to love them uh, very much indeed, and I have been there many times. And of course, uh, Malula was briefly uh, overrun uh, by the head-chopping, uh, heart-eating uh, maniacs uh, of the so-called uh, Islamist revolution in Syria, uh, uh, and, and nuns and priests and even a bishop were decapitated. Uh, the uh, holy places were, uh, were desecrated. And it's probably a surprise to your viewers to learn that Britain and the United States and France were on the side of the uh, heart-eating head choppers rather than the priests and the nuns in Malula. Uh, we have spent a decade giving ceaseless propaganda and material support uh, to these so-called revolutionists who, if they had their way, uh, would uh, religiously cleanse from Syria all traces of not just any other religion, uh, but any other interpretation of their own religion uh, to their own narrow fanatic interpretation. And I hope that answers your question. Uh, it breaks my heart almost literally uh, what has happened to Syria. I believe that the Syrians are the finest of all the Arab people, uh, that Syria is the last castle of Arab dignity. I call on all Syrian refugees to return to their country and rebuild it after what has now been uh, virtually a decade yeah. of foreign-sponsored destruction. I once was trapped in a lift with William Hague, uh, then the uh, Foreign Secretary of Great Britain. I said to him, William, you, you've been wrong before. In fact, you've been wrong all your life, uh, but you've never... Oh. I said to William, uh, William, you've been wrong before. In fact, you've been wrong all your life, but you've never been insane before. And what you're doing in Syria is literally insane. If it succeeds, Al-Qaeda and ISIS will fly their black flag over Damascus, right next door to Israel and on the Mediterranean and the gateway to Europe. And if you fail, all these people to whom you've given sharp knives will one day come into this very building and they'll be looking for you and they'll be looking for me. These people that you are tooling up in Syria will not remain forever in Syria. Uh, they will cascade around the world, including into our own country, and they will seek to murder and maim here as they did there. Uh, I invited them to read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein right to the end. Because if you read it to the end, you know that once you've created a monster, you no longer can control it. That's why it's called a monster. And that's what we have been doing in Syria and elsewhere uh, for many years uh, in the world. 
As to Iraq, Iraq has been uh, destroyed, as I uh, predicted that it would do, uh, would be. Uh, it has spawned not just uh, the 100,000 Al-Qaeda that I predicted to Mr. Blair in the last conversation I ever had with him in the library corridor of the House of Commons, outside the gentleman's lavatory, to be precise, uh, but it has spawned something even worse than Al-Qaeda. Uh, ISIS, uh, to which I have uh, just referred. Uh, Iraq is broken and will never again be uh, put together uh, and will be a source of misery and trouble uh, for the people of Iraq and the surrounding area and indeed the world for many, many decades to come. It was just a very uh, sobering kind of assessment of matters out there, um, you know, and, um, you know, I'm quite naive about Iraq, I'll be honest, but the, the Syrian situation is utterly heartbreaking and, and it just seems to roll on and on and on and, and where the end game is that. I'm not sure if you can say where the end game will be or if we're anywhere near it. Well, I do, I do urge, Father, all Christians to talk to Syrian Christians, to Palestinian Christians, to Iraqi Christians. That's not asking much <laughs> that the leaders and the congregations of Christian churches listen to what is being said uh, by their co-religionists in the countries that were bombing and invading and mm. occupying. Mm. And if they did do that, they'd get a very different perspective uh, to the prevailing narrative. Yeah. George, I'm, I'm mindful of time. I've got a raft of questions, but something I'd like to ask, uh, you know, I'm a Christian is probably quite obvious, uh, but um, and talk to kind of teach the values to love thy neighbor. Um, and that's quite easy when things are going well in one's life or, but if uh, you felt betrayed or you've been let down, then that becomes a bit more of a challenge. And I'm sure I've upset individuals uh, maybe through a sermon or whatever, but um, I was wondering if you have um, any regrets. Are there any times where you can think where you crossed the line because you are controversial. Uh, you have a, a very strong opinion, uh, but just looking back, have you, have you regretted any of the, the times where you've, of course, maybe inflicted sadness on someone, as we, as we all have. Well, uh, only a fool has no regrets, and I'm not a fool. Uh, so, of course, I have a thousand regrets, mainly on, on personal things, uh, but uh, on one or two uh, public things. Uh, I have a conscience. I believe that conscience is one's daily communion with God. God speaks to us every day through our conscience. Uh, we know when we are doing wrong. Uh, and uh, we may choose to, uh, to uh, carry on regardless. Uh, but our conscience ensures uh, that we do, in fact, know. And I believe that, the, that conscience is, is God's daily communion with all of us. Yeah. Uh, I have absolutely no regrets on the big political questions uh, that I have been involved with uh, throughout my life. I haven't changed uh, my essential view of the world and of humanity uh, ever, and I don't expect to uh, now at this age. Could I have expressed uh, my views uh, differently? Uh, might I have uh, been more gentle? with this opponent or that? Yes, of course. Uh, but uh, 
when you speak as many millions of words as me, don't forget I broadcast on television seven days a week. In fact, uh, uh, the fact that I pre-record some of them, oftentimes I'm on 10 times a week on television. This is television. your mother of, uh, mother of all talk shows, isn't it? Uh, well, I have lots of shows. I'm, okay. I, I broadcast five days a week on RT America. Uh, I broadcast every fortnight on an Arab television station called Al Mayadeen, uh, a, a program called Kalima Horra, which means free word. And that goes out fortnightly. Uh, and I present a program on RT UK called Sputnik every Saturday. And my big enchilada is the mother of all talk shows with, a, with an audience of 1 million people plus every single week, uh, which knocks the BBC, Sky and ITV and Channel 4 uh, all put together into a cocked hat, I'm glad to say. So they don't invite me on anymore. And if they did, I wouldn't go uh, because I'm too busy talking to larger numbers of people uh, myself. So by the grace of God, uh, a bit of talent and a lot of hard work, uh, I have built up my own media platforms and I rarely agree to be interviewed uh, by other people now. I, I do the interviewing now. Well, look at that, what a coup. I only, what did, a it. What I, a I only did it for you <laughs> because as I said, who could, who could refuse a request from the Godcast? <laughs> George, one, one thing um, that strikes me is whether you agree with you politically or not, you are a beautiful orator, aren't you? You, you have a beautiful way with language. Where did you get that passion for use of words? Do you like poetry and things like that? Yes, uh, it's a bit like Jack Nicholas when he played a wonderful shot once and someone said that was a lucky shot. And he said, yes, it's a miracle. The more I practice, the luckier I get. Uh, so one needs an innate uh, ability to speak, uh, but the more you practice, the better you get. And if you speak as much as me, for as long as me, there would be something far wrong if you hadn't gotten good on it by, by my age. Uh, so I, I did kiss the Blarney Stone uh, in Ireland, twice in fact. Um, I, you had to be uh, at my age, as a small kid, you had to be held by the ankles upside down in order to kiss it. But I did kiss it twice, and well, it's uh, stood me in good stead. I've got the I've got the blarney. I've got the gift of the gap. <laughs> you definitely have, mate. You definitely have. Just quickly, I mean, people. I, I asked. I invited people to ask questions, and uh, you won't be surprised that Big Brother came up. Was that is that something you regret? The old pussycat oh. lucky. I mean, I love that show. I loved it. Yeah. No, uh, not, not at all. Uh, my, my only regret is that I did it too well. If I had not done it so well, it might not have stayed in people's minds for so long. Uh, no, I, I did it for several hundred thousand reasons. Uh, pound notes that went to the Palestinian refugees in Gaza when there was uh, not a big queue of people uh, ready to put shoes on their children's feet and food in their children's stomachs. So. Uh, no, I don't uh, regret it uh, at all, uh, but I wouldn't do it again. No. <laughs> Just quickly, when you're not doing politics, what do you like to do to wind down? What, what, what do you Football. enjoy? You like your Football, Father. I, I, I would watch two pub teams playing 
and then listen to their managers being interviewed after the game. Which leads I, I literally, I can't get enough football. Which leads me to a standard question on the Godcast, because we're, we're in, I'm from Burnley. Have you been to Turf Moor? I have. Uh, as a matter of fact, on the very day that my hometown club, Dundee, won the Scottish uh, League Championship for the one and only time, Burnley won the English League Championship for the one and only time. I think it was season 62, 63. Uh, and uh, I was there at Muirton Park in Perth when Dundee won and Burnley won the English League the, the same day. Uh, as a matter of fact, two of my sons play uh, in the same football teams on uh, 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 their kids, yeah, under, under 14s and under 9s. And two, both of, uh, two of my sons play in the same teams as several of the Burnley players. Uh, so I get to see them uh, on the touchline uh, when, when I'm there. Uh, so uh, I have been to Turf Moor. I'm a Celtic supporter, first and foremost. Manchester United is my England team. But a good friend of mine, Willie Morgan, uh, Willie Morgan on the wing, mm. played for both Burnley and Manchester United. Ah. And I'm in regular touch with him. Well, I recently interviewed a, a guy who played for Burnley and for Celtic, a gentleman called Andy Payton, who was a great striker for oh, us yes. at Burnley and played for you yes. uh, some years ago. Yes. Um, yes. George, I'm going to let you go in a minute, but um, as a man of faith, um, what is your prayer for the Middle East, George, please, before we go? Uh, my prayer for the Middle East would be uh, that that unity might be found, that other differences schematic, sectarian, confessional, religious differences be uh, set aside. Because uh, if unity could be found from the Atlantic Ocean to the Persian Gulf would be one mighty polity. Mm. All that oil, all that gas, all that water, all those people, uh, one God, uh, it, would be, uh, it would be something to be reckoned with. It would be much more significant than almost every other continent or subcontinent on the globe. Uh, but the, those who wish to divide <clears throat> on uh, these false bases have done a good job, and the divisions are uh, very deep and lasting. Uh, so though I pray to God for that, I don't expect that prayer immediately to be answered. No, but it is one that we can all, of all different denominations and faiths, can share and, um, and support. So for that, George, I thank you. George, it's been really lovely to meet you. I thank you for your comments and uh, for giving me the cue of coming and doing an interview with us on the Godcast. And uh, uh, we send our love to you and your family in London. And uh, thank you, George, for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Father. God bless.